I just want to say thanks, John, for, for taking the time out of your day um, to join me because um, this is a big project that I've been working on um, and I'm really excited about. And it's super cool to have you as my first guest, someone that's technical, that knows how to get through the nitty gritty like technical issues um, and things like that. And yeah, thanks so much for, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm excited to be your first guest. I'm a little honored um, and, you know, hopefully good things come out of this. Looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to what comes out of this. Um, so let's just start by talking at first, like, yeah, how's your day been? How's everything been today? Day's been pretty good. It's been a busy day at work as, as the startup life goes um it was probably a pretty average day um but altogether pretty enjoyable how about you Avez? it's been a good day it's been a snow day um so i have the day off which gives me the opportunity to work on this podcast which is awesome um one of the things i love about being a teacher is having some time to do things like we get vacations we have like you know i was back in jersey for a little bit during winter break um and you know a lot of times we take breaks for granted, but um, it's really, really cool to have that that kind of balance between work and life. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited to have you as my first guest. Um, I have to say, John, you're someone that I've always been inspired by. Um, and I think back to... <laughs> no, and it's, it's completely serious because I think back to seriously where it all started, I feel like was what was the Student Affairs Committee way back when um, yeah. <laughs> with... with Campbell and all everything that was going on there and I always thought that it, it was weird because I thought like you were a different breed of human and to give context is like I was a freshman I was really unmotivated by a lot of things um, you know NJIT was not my first choice of school to go to um, it was a, cho- a school that ended up um, it was the most economical for me um, but to see someone give, you know, their all to things like the Student Affairs Committee back then, um, it just felt really different. And actually, you know what's funny? I don't know how old you are. You're, I assume you're just a few years older than me, right? How old do you think I am? Take a guess. That's, dude, I'm so hard at guessing these things. Um, I would say maybe, so I'm turning 27, so you must be like 29, I'm 27. No. Yeah, yeah, I'm 27. That's ridiculous because it's just there's a lot of like you're you're an inspiration in a lot of ways because you've accomplished a lot. You know what it is? It's just I had a late birthday. I was born in July, so I was always the youngest kid in my in my year in school. That's all it was. Damn, that really puts a lot of things into perspective. Um, but I always loved the intentionality of the things that you did. Because um, what I remember from back then um, about that student affairs committee, like you always took whatever task, whether it was big and like game changing or whether it was small, but you put your effort all into it. Um, and that's something that I always admired. And now you are the CEO of Ocular Motor Technologies, which is really, really exciting. So I just want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about what you've been doing over the past few years and what this company is. For sure. Uh, Thanks for the the glowing introduction. Of course. Uh, Student Affairs was a good time with you. It was a really, really excellent time. I had a blast. Uh, 
<laughs> My name is uh, John Vito D'Antonio Bertignoli, and I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Ocula Motor Technologies. We are a, a startup company based out of Newark, New Jersey, um, that is developing platform technologies to help optometrists aid in the diagnosis and treatment of a variety of binocular vision disorders. The technology is based on research that I did um, and my mentor advised me on when I was an undergraduate student at NJIT. Um, our co-founders are all NJIT faculty and alums, and actually most of our hires, we have nine employees right now, I think seven of us are of NJIT pedigree. Um, so it's really a little homegrown NJIT-based company. We still work in a building right adjacent to campus, um, virtually, albeit at this point in time. Um, but yeah, so we, we work at the intersection of virtual reality and healthcare. Specifically, what we do is use uh, a more expensive kind of headset, not your, your Oculus Quest 2, um, but something that has onboard eye tracking technologies. They're cameras that look at your eyes, uh, and what we do is record those eye movements and create experiences that seem like games, but are in fact um, healthcare delivery modalities disguised as games. And we use your eyes to measure and record all sorts of different things. And we change the game or change the diagnostic based on how your eyes are performing. So just that, that kind of intersectionality of VR and healthcare is where we live right now. Right. And so a lot of people don't know this, but when I was back home, I got an opportunity to try your device, which was really, really quite extraordinary um, to, to me, um, for sure. Um, and so to break down just in a, in layman's term, I think what you said, um, what you guys are really doing is you're using VR to essentially heal people's eyes, right? With these are specific disorders. And, and can you explain more about, you know, how common this disorder, because you, you guys targeted one specific disorder for now, right? Is that the case? Exactly. So we have a, a suite of products that are in development. That's why I call it a sort of platform technology. But our core piece of um, intellectual property that I developed um, when I was an undergraduate is a game that treats a vision disorder known as convergence insufficiency. Um, so, Avez, will you do a little activity with me real quick? Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, okay, all right. So what I want you to do is hold two fingers out in front of your face, just like this. So one really close to your nose, but centered, and the other one farther away from your face, maybe like a foot away from your face. Keep them both centered, right? So what I want you to do is look from your far finger to your near finger and your far finger to your near finger and repeat that movement. Hopefully it's coming across on the camera right now, but what does it feel like your eyes are doing? Well, one observation, I feel like it's, a lot easier to focus on the far finger than the one touching my nose. Great observation. The other thing is the one touching my nose is completely blurry. Even when I try to focus on it, it's blurry. Whereas when I focus on the far finger, it can become really, really clear and there's never any blurry. Even when I look at the front finger, the far finger is still kind of in sight and it gets a little bit blurry when I'm looking at the front finger, mm -hmm. but it the other way around is like completely different. Does that kind of make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. 
So what your eyes are doing is they're just crossing inward and outward. Um, if you look at me do it, I mean, I don't need my fingers to do it, but you can see what my eyes are doing right now, right? Um, it's just going cross-eyed. The thing that kids' parents are always telling um, the kid, you know, don't, don't do that with your eyes or they'll get stuck like that, right? Um, they won't get stuck like that. Full disclosure, they will not get stuck like that. Um, but you do that all the time in your day-to-day -day life. Whenever you look at something that's far away and then you look at something that's nearer to your face, your eyes cross inward a little bit. Um, the reason that they do that is because they're like two cameras on your face and they see two different things. So what they're trying to do is rotate just enough that what you're looking at appears to be single. Now you were talking a little bit about blur when we were looking at our fingers, but really if you did that again real quick, if you look at one of the fingers, you ought to see two of the other ones. If you look at the far one, for example, you should see two of the near one. You see what I mean? Right, right. So that's because they're two cameras and they have two different perspectives. Um, now you are able to make the images that you were seeing single, right? Your near finger and your far finger, you could cross your eyes and see only one finger. 5% of the population suffers from that vision disorder that I mentioned, convergence insufficiency. They can't see things single um, and they can't see things clear at those closer distances. Kind of like how you said when you were doing it, you had more trouble with the near finger than you did the far finger, right? These people are the same way. It's just that what's the hard one for them is a little bit farther out than it is for you. So maybe they have trouble seeing single at arm's length. And what do we do at arm's length? Look at a computer, look at our phone, read a book, write things down. Imagine if everything that you did in today's entirely virtual work environment was double and blurry all day. That would just be impossible to work with, right? That's, that's not a realistic thing to expect someone to work with that. And it's most unfortunate um, to be diagnosed with this when you're a member of the pediatric population. So when you are learning how to read, if you can't even see the words on the page in front of you and your teachers are just saying, just read it, like just sound it out, read the letters, sound it out. Like I can't see the words on the page and I'm a kid, so I don't know how to communicate that, right? You know, I, I don't know if you ever wore glasses, but a, a pretty common experience for people who wear glasses is they didn't know they needed them until they got them for the first time. It was like a whole new world. And this is the same way. You, you don't know that what you're looking at, that your entire perception of the world is different than everyone else's until you learn how good it can be. Now, what stinks about this vision disorder is that it can't just be fixed with glasses. Um, it's not an acuity problem, acuity referring to like blurriness that you perceive that can be corrected with lenses. It's a movement problem. It's where your eyes physically aren't moving inward enough to see what you're looking at as a single entity rather than as doubled, um, which is where we come in. So we develop games that elicit these eye movements, these inward rotations of your eyes. It's based on years and years of proven science of something called vision therapy. It's, it's just like physical therapy, except for your eyeballs. So we call it vision therapy. Um, and an assortment of large randomized clinical trials have shown that it works. You go to an optometrist's office, you do basically physical therapy for your eyes, you know, eight or 12 weeks, an hour or two a week, and you'll see single and clear and you'll be totally fine. The problem that we were trying to address is that it's unconscionably boring. Imagine being a kid and having to like look at your fingers in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, three to five times a day, 
three to five minutes per session for eight to 12 weeks and like have an attention disorder while you're at it. Why not? Like, it's just not going to happen. So we developed this game that replicates the normal experiences of vision therapy, but does so in a new and engaging way that is particularly um, beneficial to pediatric patients. Right. No. And yeah, and I, and I can attest to that too, because um, what essentially you're saying is you're giving people a way to train their eyes, right? Everything exactly. to be good at anything, you need to practice it. You need to do something repetitively. And a lot of people you're saying don't have the attention to say, especially, and I think there's a stigma, like if you know that you're learning something for some reason, people want to like shut off and they, they just don't want to do it. And that's what I really yeah. love about what you're doing is because you turn it into a game. So like, they don't even realize that what they're doing is training and practicing, but training your eyes to, to, to process and uh, sync essentially the cameras that are the eyes together. But you do it in a way where it's super passive that they don't know that they're, they're training their eyes. They just feel like they're playing a game. And I think that's what is really, you know, revolutionary. I, I think revolutionary is a fun term to throw yeah, around. So. Yeah. yeah, no, it, it is though because it, it's important because you have to make these things engaging uh, and, and that's excellent. Um, so one thing that I, I want to talk to you about is even the, the idea of starting a company out of college, right? Um, it's scary to people. What was that like for you? Like, did you feel like you had, did you even think about getting like a, a full-time career before, you know, starting your own company? Like, what was that thought process? Cause I think that's a lot, that's something that a lot of people would think about. That's a, a tough question to answer. Um, I mean, very, very briefly, no, I didn't actually seek out a traditional career. I, I'd like to joke that um, I was too lazy to apply for jobs, so I ended up starting my own company instead, um, which is somewhat facetious, but also kind of true. Um, I thought when I was an undergraduate for the first few years that I wanted to go to med school. Uh, both my parents are physicians and I enjoyed hearing about their days at work and I thought it was something that I wanted to do. So I majored in biomedical engineering, which is uh, kind of bridges the gap between healthcare and engineering uh, in my experience. And I thought, well, you know, I want to be a doctor, but I also like playing with Lego. So let's be a biomedical engineer for a couple of years and go to med school. Sometime halfway through uh, my undergraduate career, I realized that I liked being an engineer more than I liked the idea of going to medical school. So when I got involved in uh, my undergraduate research in uh, Dr. Tara Alvarez's lab, where all this stuff, all this company related work spun out of, um, I just found myself having too good of a time to stop. So I figured, what the heck, I'll stick around for another year. I'll get my master's degree. I really wanted to write a thesis. I wanted a book with my name on it. So. I kept working on this research and I wrote a book, I got my name on it, and then um, we'd applied for little bits and pieces of grant funding here and there, you know, like $3,000 from this organization, then it was 12 from another, then it was 50 from another, and then suddenly it was like, here's a half a million dollars in equity funding, um, you should start a company, right? It was a little bit of a, a snowball, it was a little bit accidental. I don't think anybody planned for this to happen. 
Um, but certainly having an open mind um, and being engaged, uh, being okay with not knowing what on earth you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis are, are good qualities to have to go down that road. Definitely. And I think the most recent thing I saw on your website, I think, did you recently get a million dollar grant to continue your work or what was that? Yeah, I'm, I'm super, super proud of that. So thank you for asking. Um, we were the recipient of, it's called a phase two SBIR award from the NSF. And let me break that down. That's a small business innovation research award. Um, phase two, meaning um, we had to do a smaller grant in order to unlock this one. And it's from the National Science Foundation, the second largest organization um, that funds research in the United States, second only to the National Institute of Health. Um, this award is aimed at companies that are doing high risk, high reward technical research. The idea is um, if you are a university backed startup, much like ours, um, and you're having trouble getting venture capital, for example, you could go to an organization like the National Science Foundation and say, hey, this is like really high risk R&D that we're doing right here, but we think that we have a case to be made for a business at the end of it. Um, so it was, it was a million dollar award and I'm the primary investigator on it, which is just, it's, it's so cool to say that I'm the primary investigator on a million dollar grant and this grant funds all of my employees' salaries, it funds our research and development, it funds buying new equipment. It's, uh, it was a game changer for us, so much of uh, a game changer. So yeah, I, I love the National Science Foundation. I love paying taxes and I love when, uh, when taxpayer dollars go to R&D. No, no, it's exciting. And now, so for people that, that are interested in becoming innovators like yourself, you know, talk to me about the process of, first of all, finding that, because I assume you had to do some research mm -hmm. to find that grant first and it yeah, just yeah. popped out of nowhere. Like, what was that process like? Did you have an idea of where to look first to, to find the grants? Did sure. someone promote it to you? How did that work? People ask me this all the time, actually. They, um, from, from undergraduates to people who are, um, you know, trying to really start their own company, they ask, where did you find the money, right? Um, and for us, it was a very kind of iterative process. Um, like I said, we started small. Uh, we started with a, a very small $3,000 award um, that was designed to teach engineers how to think like entrepreneurs. Um, that particular grant unlocked the ability for us to apply to another larger grant that was a $50,000 award. And then that grant unlocked the ability for us to apply to another grant that was a $225,000 award. And then that one allowed us to apply for the million dollar award. Um, so really all of this started with a little baby $3,000 that I just used to buy like a nice laptop and a VR headset to do some game development on. Um, none of it was really designed to be, oh, I need to go out there and find grants. Where can I find money, right? It was just uh, an opportunity that snowballed into lots and lots of money over time and lots and lots of work to, to continue to get that funding. Let me be clear, but um, I... Because I, from that money, I mean, you use that, like you said, to hire a really cool team. And how many people do you have on staff now? We have nine employees, myself included right now. That's really, really exciting. Uh, and I assume now that they're helping you with, with more research into grants and more, you know, of course, the development role. Like, so do you, did you find that 
you know, do you invest a lot of time looking into these grants or do you invest more time in building your product? Like where do you emphasize your like priorities? So my time can, some of my time is definitely spent on looking for funding opportunities, right? The grants are great because they're non-equity taking, you know, they're, they're not exactly free money. You certainly have responsibilities for it, but the government isn't coming in and taking a percentage of your company in exchange for um, the money, much like a venture capital would, right? So I definitely do look for grants that we would be eligible for, but those grants have terms and conditions and they are a lot of work. Applying for a grant of that scale takes months of effort. The, the million dollar award that we were talking about probably took me about 150 hours to put together all the documentation for that. It was a solid 60 pages of content and uh, that's for like a 150 page document. There's a bunch of nonsense that's associated with it too. So that takes tons of time. Yeah, on that point. So were you working that on that? Like, was that your priority as like, I am the CEO, I need to get this yeah. done or was that a team effort? Like, how did that? So that's definitely my job. Uh, the way that I think about my job is um, I've hired people who are better than me at basically everything that I would want to do technically, right? Um, can I build a game in Unity? Yeah, and it's going to take me ages and it's not going to be very good. But I can hire game developers who are phenomenal at their job. That's, that's what I want to do. I want to hire people who are better than me and then give them the tools and creative freedom and stress-free environment that they need in order to be as successful as possible. So what that means is my priorities mostly are trying to get money to keep them around and keep them as happy as long as possible, yeah. So, but, and that's interesting to me because you have an engineering background, right? But what you just said sounds like an uh, MBA student who like, doesn't know anything exactly like you said doesn't know anything about engineering and he's just like he's the guy that was hired to be the ceo so how do you blend those two because i i personally think it's important to have that that knowledge and that know-how as a ceo but then also have that business acumen but yeah do you find yourself struggling between those two identities of being the engineer and then also being the business person do I find myself struggling? That's a good question. Um, I think the reason that I'm good at my job right now is because I'm able to sort of bridge the gap between two very, very different worlds. Um, the engineering world, um, the general scientific world is very much based on the idea of um, develop a hypothesis, test it, and come up with a conclusion, right? Whereas a lot of people in the business world uh, can unfortunately be in the opposite camp. They'll come to a conclusion and ask you to find information to prove it, right? Um, and that's really, really difficult to, to have two people in the same room talking at the same table who are basically speaking two different languages to each other. Um, what I think I'm particularly good at is translating between the hardcore scientists on our team, the day-to-day -day developers on our team, and the uh, group of investors uh, that back us. That's my talent, is just being the intermediary between all those things. And yeah, it's a struggle. It's definitely a struggle to do that, but um, I, I think I find a fair amount of fulfillment in doing that, in being... A, maybe a little bit of a 
puppet master for for lack of a better term coming to my mind right now just playing with a bunch of different pieces and trying to get them to act all in unison with each other right so you're kind of you're in my view it seems like you're treating your company as an engineering structure right like you i think want to optimize how effective your employees are so that they can do the best job. Do you, do you find that to be accurate? Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's my only job is to, or at least the way that I think about it is if I can do something that makes their lives easier, then that is my job. That's really all there is to it. So, so you're a CEO, but that's just one part of your life, which is another thing that I find admirable about you is you, you wear many hats, right? So you're also a professor, I believe, an adjunct professor, is that correct? Yep, I, I am an adjunct instructor at NJIT, yep. Talk to me about that role, because, I mean, you just got a million dollar grant. I, I definitely don't think you're doing it for the money. So like, what brings you back to campus and like, why, why, why choose to be an adjunct professor? Sure. Um, to be fair, it does pay me something. Now, anyone who knows anything about adjuncting instruction knows that it doesn't pay much at all. Um, but I think what I like about it is, or one aspect of it that I like, at least financially, is that it's a finite amount of time that I go, I work, and I receive money for it, and I can just put it somewhere else. It's, it's sort of fun money for me, um, financially speaking. But as far as the actual work goes, I really love it. I think I started teaching... Um, maybe 2018, um, I started teaching a freshman level engineering class at NJIT specifically for biomedical engineers. And it's a class that I took when I was an undergraduate. The idea is you get a Lego Mindstorms kit. It's uh, Lego's like introductory robotics kit. So you can do a little bit of programming. You can do like some motors, some sensors, that kind of thing with it. And the class teaches you basic engineering fundamentals, basic documentation fundamentals, presentation fundamentals, and then it culminates all the way at the end of the semester with uh, you have to design a, a surgical robot. You have to do a mock surgery using a Lego set. I remember when I was a freshman, we did, um, it was some kind of brain surgery. We had like a skull made out of styrofoam that we covered in a thin layer of Play-Doh and we had to cut the Play-Doh, peel it back, cut a hole in the, drill a hole in the styrofoam. Oh, we were implanting like a, a deep brain stimulation device for Parkinson's patients or something. It's coming back to me. And we had to do all that with Legos, right? It was, it was absolutely ridiculous and it was one of the most fun classes I've ever taken. So the opportunity just, it presented itself. I knew that they needed a teacher and I was on campus because I was, um, I think I just finished my master's degree at that point in time. So I said, yeah, let me let me take that class on. It sounds like a good time. And I just found so much fulfillment in being able to deliver instruction in something that I have such a positive recollection of. It really was one of my favorite classes. And I hope that, and it, it sometimes seems, that my students do really, really enjoy the learning environment that I'm able to cultivate there. It's just, it's a happy, positive place. And that's what I like about it the most. That sounds incredible. And, and I'm a teacher myself as well. I teach on the high school level. One thing that I find frustrating is I don't have a lot of ability to change things, right? Like I have a core curriculum. I have like pacing guides. I have like, you know, very rigid structure. 
Um, so talk to me about your like lesson planning experience. Like, do, uh, do you just come in and be like, this is the project that I want to assign, or do you have to adhere to a curriculum? Like, how does that work? And it, does this become gotcha. essentially like a creative playground for you to like take? I, I wish that it were slightly more of a creative playground than it was. Like I said, I'm an adjunct instructor, right? I show up and there is a syllabus and I'm supposed to follow the syllabus. There is some wiggle room in there, but at the end of the day, it is an accredited engineering program and there's not too much space um, for me to deviate within the course. It'd be cool to develop my own course, don't get me wrong, but I don't get paid for that, I'm an adjunct. <laughs> um, so I, I do my best, I try to um, restructure within the scope of the learning outcome. So for example, right, one of the things that students are supposed to learn from this class is basic presentation skills. And the way that that used to be done was um, we would assign from a, a list of journal articles, you'd read the journal article, make a PowerPoint presentation about it, present it. And they were just very similar. You know, a, a research paper presentation is, is a fairly kind of constricted uh, method of presentation. So instead, what I started doing is a really fun game that I love and I do with my company as an onboarding event every time we have a new employee. We play a game called PowerPoint Roulette. The idea is everybody makes a presentation targeting three to five minutes about whatever they want. It could be about Sonic the Hedgehog. It could be about North Korean ballistic missiles. It could be about why I really like cats and dogs are terrible. And that's not true. Cats are terrible. I love dogs. Um, but it could be about whatever they want. And then what I do is I put them all in a folder and I randomize the order. And then you just come up to the front of the class and I pull up a file and you have to present it cold without ever having seen it before. So it really gets you out of your head of like what is going on in this presentation. It doesn't matter because everyone's going to go up there and everyone's going to make a fool of themselves. So it's not about the content. It's about you being able to go up there and be comfortable. So yeah, there's a little bit of wiggle room and I try to take advantage of it wherever possible. That's probably my favorite way that I do it right now. That's no, that I, I learned a lot from you just saying that because um, I think even though, so I teach geometry and one of the things that is a challenge to me is making people feel comfortable, right? Whether it's comfortable asking questions, comfortable coming up to the board to like work out a problem, whatever it is, it's hard to make people feel comfortable. And I feel like when you say feel free, like no, not when you say feel free to like make mistakes, but when you bring that goofy element into it where it's exactly. like you know everyone has no idea what is up there on the board it it changes because it i that that important work of making people comfortable is done because they can just they know that everyone is in the same boat and i think that that's really really incredible um and that's going to be something that i try to implement too because it's important in order to effectively teach and this is something that i've been trying to learn um, is how to effectively teach because I'm a teacher. So I want to opt or be the best at being a teacher right now. Um, so, so that's really, really helpful knowledge to me. So thanks for sharing that. Um, one thing I want to ask you about, because I think these actually go hand in hand. Um, have you thought a lot about mindfulness? Do you consider mindfulness, uh, i.e. like being present in the, the moment and like, you know, taking actions like breathing to get yourself out of your head? Like, 
Do you think about that a lot? Do you practice mindfulness? And do you have any thoughts on, on that space? Because I think that's something that I'm deeply interested in. Yeah, have, have you been talking to my therapist? <laughs> no, I have not. So um, one of my main challenges that I've dealt with um, related to not my teaching career, but my startup career is the somewhat toxic mindset that surrounds startup communities, right? The idea is if you're not on that hashtag grind set 80 hour work week, you 25, eight kind of mindset, then you're not doing it right. So either you do the 80 hour work week and you feel awful because you've done it, or you don't do the 80 hour work week and you feel like you're not measuring up to what you're supposed to do, right? You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And I really struggled with that for a very, very long time, feeling like I was either working too much or not working enough, sometimes the same. Um, and it limited my ability to work effectively for uh, a really long time. Yeah. So did, did you feel a bit of like imposter syndrome in a way? Certainly, certainly. Yeah. Um, and I think what I found um, was through mindfulness-based activities. Um, and for those of you who don't know what mindfulness-based activities are, I highly encourage you to look into them. It's just a basic sort of presence-based activities. Um, it's learning about how to sort of separate out what is happening in time versus what you are feeling about what is happening. Um, and just being able to healthily evaluate those feelings separately from what is actually happening. Um, it's a really, really powerful tool and one that certainly changed the way that I work and certainly changed the way that I feel about my work, left me um, not feeling like I was just spiraling down and down and down this awful startup culture rabbit hole um, and instead able to effectively do my job. Um, and feel good about doing it to the extent that I want to do it instead of feeling like I have to be doing it all the time. Yeah, and, and to that point, one thing that I also really appreciated about you is uh, you invited me recently to come paintballing with you and your coworkers, <laughs> right? And, you know, I was, of course, all in. You say paintballing. That, I mean, that sounds like an exciting thing, and, and you do some really cool, exciting things. And, but one thing that I was thinking about when you made that invitation is like, how does this connect to the business, right? Because you, you, you mentioned that it was a business outing and I'm like, you know, like this guy like is doing a VR company, like what does paintballing have anything to do with that? And, you know, now that I'm getting more, you know, into mindfulness and like, you know, just being present and things like that and, you know, I, I think it's important to create spaces where people aren't working at, and be comfortable there. And that's almost equally as important as creating a good environment. So just talk to me more about, you know, your philosophy there about like incorporating like a paintballing retreat for your company, like, and how that shaped, you know, the productivity at your company. Right. It's about culture. And I, I like, I vomit in my mouth whenever I say my company culture, it's just such a ridiculous trope to talk about, but um, I think that my interpretation of what my job is that I said before is to make my employees lives as easy as possible. I want them to not have any problems so that they can be 
as technically and creatively free and fulfilled as possible to, you know, do the objectives that I set out for them. Um, sometimes work is hard, don't get me wrong, but I think that it's a generally fulfilling environment. And one of the ways that we do that is by coming up with a, a culture of ease, I guess, to the extent possible. It's not just about work. It's about enjoying spending time with the people who you're around for so much of the day. So paintballing was a, it was a fun outing, right? But just a fun outing once a year isn't a sustainable way to maintain that kind of culture. We do this constantly. Um, we have a game night every single week and it varies you know sometimes people show up in droves sometimes they bring their significant others and other times it's just three of us hanging out playing minecraft for a couple hours right um but just the idea that this organization can be more than just technical work and that it could be even better technical work if we know each other better and we enjoy spending time with each other is something that i've always wanted to uh to create. Yeah, and that reminds me of when you invited me to play Among Us just randomly. Yeah, that was one yeah which was and again, I mean it's little it's like it was so sudden I'm like, how does this have anything to do with this company? But I was like, I mean it sounds it kind of Yeah. But that's the point. It's not work, right? It's just enjoying time with people who you spend time with. And it's not work. If it were work, then it wouldn't be fun. So we're just hanging out playing games, yeah. Um, another thing which I really appreciate about our friendship is that you dragged me along to jump out of an airplane with you. Oh at, like, way back when. Um, which, for a lot of people know me, they know that I'm terrified of heights, that I'm terrified of roller coasters. Um, they, those are, like, the biggest fears. But... They also might know that I'm the biggest yes man in the world. Where if you ask me, you to, yeah, yeah. Where if you ask me to do something, like there's so much pressure internally for me. Like I don't want to say no so badly that I would rather jump out of a plane than say no. You know. Um, but so talk to me about first of all your interest in skydiving because I mean I've went uh, just once now. Um, but you do this frequently, so talk to me about how that came to be, um, and you're now certified to jump alone. Talk to me about that experience. Sure. Um, skydiving is the easiest form of mindfulness that you can uh, come across. The first time that I went skydiving, um, I'd been wanting to go with a group of friends for years. We'd been saying we would go since high school, ah, oh, we're all turn 18, and then we'll go skydiving, and it never happened. And it went on the back burner for a couple of years, and then I was working in Dr. Alvarez's lab, again, at, on NJIT campus with a few people, and we all said, ah, yeah, let's go skydiving. And after so many conversations and nothing really materializing, I just woke up one morning, uh, November, it was kind of cold, and I said, I'm going to go skydiving today. And I went and I did it. Uh, and I don't I don't remember a thing about it. That's the, the common thread of most first-time skydiving experiences is just sensory overload, and you can't really figure out what's going on. You remember everything? It's seared in your brain? Yeah, I guess a different experience. Um, I do want to hear what you had to think about it, um, but I think um, what happened then was just much the same way that I kind of snowballed some research into, whoops, I guess I own a company now. I kind of, whoops, I guess I'm a skydiver now. 
Um, my friends from the lab were then annoyed at me. Oh, you went skydiving without us? Why did you do that? Now I had to go again. So I went again with them. Then my mom said, you went skydiving without me? So then I went again with her. And then the fourth time I did a tandem jump, the guy on my back, Jake, um, who's one of the instructors at Skydive Cross Keys where I jump, Jake said, hey man, um, what are you doing? Like, are you going to get your license or what? And I just said, I mean, I guess, mind you, he said this when we were under canopy, when we were like below a parachute floating down to land. So it was, it was a little bit under duress that I think I said yes to this, but... Uh, yeah, I showed up a couple weekends later. Um, you take like a six-hour ground course, um, and then they put a rig on your back, and you jump out of a plane by yourself for the first time, and it's it's absolutely nuts. But So the reason why I said um, that it's the easiest mindfulness experience that you'll ever find is it's it's impossible to focus on anything other than the thing that you are doing in that moment, right? When you are skydiving, every fiber of your existence is focused on the activity at hand. And it's not like this survival instinct like it may have been for the first jump for a lot of people. It's just about flying. You are a human being with the capability to move your body in midair and fly. It doesn't feel like falling. Most people kind of think it feels like falling. It feels more like floating. And when you start to jump with other people, uh, tandem jumps are not like this. Tandem jumps are what you do for your first time skydiving. There's an experienced guy strapped on your back and you're just kind of along for the ride. But when you start jumping with other people and you start learning how to get together with them and do movements relative to them, the sport becomes extreme handholding. Um, you're just like up there trying to hold hands with as many people as you possibly can in as short a time as you can. And there's nothing else you can focus on. There's no work. There's no, oh, I have to drive home after this. There's no, oh, I'm worried about my rent is due. None of that matters. You are just purely in the moment. Um, so I try to go as much as I can. It's a little too cold in New Jersey for that right now. I'd have to fly somewhere realistically. But weekends in the spring, summer, and fall, um, I'll try to go there as much as possible. Some weekends I'll just show up for a jump and then hang out for a bit. Other weekends I've cranked out like probably 12 jumps over two days. And, and I'm a baby in the sport. I only have a hundred jumps and I, I know nothing. There's always something new to learn, something new to try. So have um, you, have I you jumped just, in I love it so much. other places? Cause I, I know we went together out in South Jersey. Like what, what um, has been the most remarkable spot that you've jumped? A lot of people get into the sport to jump in different places. Um, so they'll like go jump in Hawaii or something so they could see the ocean, the mountains, stuff like that. I've actually only ever jumped at cross keys. For me, it's, it's one element of safety um, to not worry about. If you know the area, you know, generally speaking, what the winds are like there, you know the landing pattern, you know the people. So for me, I've always felt very comfortable jumping there um, because it's again it's just it's a little bit safer for me to not go to another drop zone and have to learn all that on the fly it's something that i'm sure i'm eventually going to do but for now i'm really really happy to just stay there oh no that, that sounds wonderful um that that's incredible i i, I want to talk even briefly about my experience too yeah i want to hear what you remember because I remember nothing about my first jump. Right. No, because, I mean, for me, that that first jump, um, it started before I jumped out of the plane, right? Because the, the weeks, and let me be honest with you, 
I remember when you asked me, hey, like, do you want to go skydiving? And I was like, I'm a yes man, so I said yes. And really, Avez, we got to work on this. You're a little bit too much of a yes man. (laughs) I know, but I I do love that about myself. But I was like, I, I sincerely hope that John forgets that he asked me to skydive because I did say yes, but I am terrified. And then you remembered, which sucked for me. And then I remember just days before, you know, I was like dreaming about it. And I was like, I was of course like freaking myself out because I was just like thinking about it way too much. And then the good thing though is, I just went, right? And I think, so the reason that I am a yes man, I think, is I feel like being a yes man is also a form of mindfulness, right? Because you put yourself into situations where once you're there, you just feel like you can't not be in that situation. Like, you have to be present for it. You have to be there. And that is sometimes really important for me because if i didn't make myself uncomfortable then i would never do exciting things right and having that social pressure is something that's important to me it's like it's a it's an accountability metric in a way right it keeps me accountable because it like i don't want to let you down by saying i would go and then end up not going right it holds me accountable but then it's really cool because it helps me have unique experiences like that And I I will say, I went up on the plane. I remember that conversation. I watched that video a lot, too. And um, I was completely terrified. What, the the video that you had recorded? Yeah, yeah, because we we got that video package done, right? And so I was very, very terrified up until the... It was probably like half a second after I jumped out of the plane... Or, like, I didn't jump, of course. I was pushed because I, I look at the video and I'm like, I'm clinging on to dear life. Thank God there was a person on my back that, like, pushed me out. Just to be clear, I've seen the video. You were not clinging. You had your hands like you were going to cling. Oh. I don't think you understood how to use your muscles. In that oh. Moment. I think they were just like, I need to hold on to something. And then you didn't hold on to anything. No. You were just there. It, it, but so... That one said that first second was terrifying, but then as soon as I was outside of the airplane and as soon as I was falling, it was exactly like you said. You're not falling, you're flying. Like You know what we call that? That's that's the door monster. So the the second that you're in the door for the first time and you go out for just a hair's breadth of a second, you feel like you're falling. Because you are, because you have a frame of reference, right? There's a plane, and you are falling out of the plane. But as soon as that's over, there's no plane of reference anymore. Our puny human lizard brains are not built to distinguish the difference between 13,000 feet and 10,000 feet. You don't even know that you're falling. The ground doesn't look like you're falling until you get much, 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 much lower. So all you feel is flotation. I guess it, it like there's wind rushing past you, but it doesn't feel like falling. Right, and there's an immediate sense I think of clarity. Right, where I thought like, what am I afraid of? The ground is so far away. Like there's not like it's not like in in five seconds I'm going to directly impact the ground. Where you know there would be that fear. Like there is there is a moment of clarity where I was just like wait the ground is far away, like, I'm not immediately at danger, and then you look around, 
and you're like, this is the most unimpeded view of the world yeah. ever. Like, there's nothing that you can do that will give you a better view of the planet that we live on, unless you literally are Jeff Bezos and you launch yourself in a rocket <laughs> to outer space. Like, it's like people go to such lengths to get a good review, right? They'll they'll pay, you know, thousands of dollars to get to the top of one trade center and get that like like that view where, you know, you look down and the floor is glass and you feel like you're like standing on top of the world. Like skydiving is that. Like there's no better view of the world than being there and there's no obstruction. And yeah, like you said, that fear melts away because your brain can't like there, there's no danger to process so your brain is like i'm kind of fine the only thing is like when you're on exactly how you said your frame of reference right when you're on the airplane there was a ground right the ground is the ground of the airplane but then you jump out and the ground immediately now becomes thirteen thousand feet below you or however many thousand feet below you and you're you realize there's no immediate danger and it's like, what was I afraid of in the first yeah. place, you know? And that clarity was something that, that really, really stuck with me, I think. I would be remiss if I didn't say that fear is what keeps you safe in this sport. If you don't feel any fear, then you should get out of the sport. But what's so cool about it is that you have all the tools, you've learned all the tools to manage that fear. The sport is about managing safety to the extent possible and mitigating your fear through those means. So for me, you know, I have a rig that I have inspected and that my FAA certified rigger has inspected. I know it was safe. I know it has been certified to be safe. I know there's a reserve parachute in it. And if I ever have a problem with my main parachute, there's a handle I can pull that's going to throw out that reserve parachute. And I didn't pack that. My FAA certified rigger packed that. My main parachute, I packed and I take time and care because I want it to come out nice and clean and calmly and just be a nice smooth ride down. When I'm on the plane, when I'm on the ground, I'm checking my handles, I'm making sure everything is secure, nothing's come dislodged, I'm wearing a helmet, I have an altimeter, I have another altimeter, I have all sorts of safety mechanisms, I have an automatic activation device that if I were unconscious, I would still land with something over my head. So it's about doing everything that you possibly can to minimize um, the danger. And then that little bit left over of fear that you have, that's why we do it. Because it's still, at the end of the day, you're jumping out of a plane at 13,500 feet. That's nuts. But you've done everything that you possibly can to be as safe as possible. And you're just up there having a blast with your friends. So I wanna try to do some mind tricking here and now tie that same philosophy back to how you run your business. Like, do you see parallels there? Because I think one thing that holds a lot of people back, especially like in the startup game, is that fear of failure and just fear in general. So do you find yourself using the principles that you've learned through being a skydiver? Uh, how does that shape your, your role as a CEO? It, it absolutely does. So I'm not sure which way the relationship was, like what directionality of it was, if the skydiving informed the business or if the business informed the skydiving. More likely, both kind of happened to each other. Um, but yeah, I'm terrified that the money will run out. And it's not even for me at this point. It's I have 
eight other people who I'm working with and I pay them. What happens if there's no more money to pay them? It's terrifying. Um, there have been times when we have been cash strapped. Some of my own money is in this business. It's just, it's a part of the startup world, unfortunately. And I'm lucky that I was privileged enough to be able to have the cash on hand to be able to do that at the time. Um, but what I'm able to do is take all the preventative steps that I possibly can, take all the, the knowledge that I have about how to get money, how to raise money, how to spend money in a reasonable way, how to save money, and apply that to the business to mitigate the fear of, oh, it's all going to go belly up and I'm going to put a bunch of people out of work. It's, it's about fear mitigation. And yeah, I, I feel largely prepared to do that because of what I do at work every day. That's awesome. Um, I want to make a slight pivot um, to talk a little bit about technology generally, right? Um, I think one thing that I appreciate about our friendship is um, if there's something cool about technology, I get really excited and it's hard for me to find people that are equally as excited. I think early on in our friendship, I think why, why we connected is because we would always talk about like the new Google Pixel phone or whatever it was that was yeah. like, um, so talk about, talk to me about like your interest in technology. Like what do you see as like some of the most exciting technologies right now? Like how do you, and also how do you see your company playing into the future of technology? Sure. Um, I guess I'll start with that because that's slightly more exciting to me, I guess. I'm a little selfish. Um, we're, <laughs> we're, we're very, very privileged in that um, there are larger sort of industry drivers that are pushing for eye tracking in virtual reality. It's not just little old us saying, hey, can we get some cameras in those headsets, please? The idea is if you know where a person is looking in the virtual reality environment, then you can just focus on creating the highest quality renders possible at that area and everything else around it can be kind of blurry. Like think about whatever you're looking at right now. It's really, really clear, but the stuff around it in your peripheral vision kind of blurry, right? So do you need the greatest, coolest, beefiest, new fangled NVIDIA GPU in order to effectively render crystal clear virtual reality? Well, if you know where someone is looking, probably not, right? So. We're super privileged in that there's this larger sort of gaming industry driver that is pushing for the technology that we need in virtual reality. What we're excited about is that these headsets are becoming cheaper and cheaper and available to more and more people um, with those fancy um, extra bits of hardware. The eye tracking cameras in particular is what we're most concerned about. Um, healthcare is a challenging space to work in, no matter if it's uh, healthcare and technology or just plain old regular healthcare. But I think that healthcare technology has the capability to augment traditional means of healthcare delivery. For us, we've always thought of ourselves not as, oh, we're going to come in and we're going to do it better than the optometrist and we're going to replace them. That's not the goal here. The goal is to give them the tools that they need in order to deliver the most efficacious diagnoses and therapy that they possibly can. Um, and if technology is developing to a point where we're able to do that, we're, we're in the sweet spot. We lucked into it, right? Back when I started this project, we were designing our own eye tracking cameras and sticking them in Oculus Dev Kit 1s. 
Um, not sustainable. We're not a hardware company. But now there's these big companies that are solving the problem for us, and we can just be a software company. It's it's really, really cool where we're at right now. As far as the rest of the industry, what am I excited about? Um, well, even real quick, like let's let's know. talk about what 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 do you think about the metaverse, the whole Facebook new branding, <laughs> like, and also, do you see that as a promising opportunity for your company? Do you see that? Do you see? areas where people should be concerned about privacy data collection like sure. yeah what do you think about that whole technology sure so i guess let's start with privacy and data collection because at the end of the day the way our technology works is it looks at how your eyes move um, one thing that a lot of people are concerned about with these eye tracking headsets is that eyes are like the patterns of people's irises the way that their eyeball actually looks could be used as an identifier which fair i, I believe that it can be that's not what we do. We look at the ways your eyes move. And these are not unique. People's eye, like it's, if we looked at how you curled uh, a barbell in a gym, everybody kind of just makes the same movement, right? Like you're just bending your arm. So we're not dealing with identifiable data. We are dealing with healthcare data, right? So, so we do take pains to ensure HIPAA compliance and all that fun stuff. But um, for the most part, what we're super excited about with this data is we should theoretically have one of the largest sets of eye movement data that has ever been created and never been kind of coalesced into a single entity. And we hope that this large data set will help us to deliver the most efficacious care possible. The more data we have, the better we can train our models to deal with the sort of edge cases that we're not quite sure uh, how to deal with right now. Now, that being said, you're right. There are certainly very valid concerns about privacy of healthcare information, but also just privacy of broader user information in our technologically connected age. Um, you know me, I, I don't really maintain social media presences. Um, I have a, an Instagram account that I think I use when the restaurant menu is only on Instagram. Um, I, I have a Facebook account because... Um, the, the skydiving place that I go, Skydive Cross Keys, their main group messaging is on Facebook. So I have to use Facebook Messenger. I don't use TikTok. I don't have a Snapchat. I don't even know what else is in anymore. Um, I try to keep my information to myself to the extent possible. Um, and to the extent possible, I think that's something that our organization, Ocular Motor Technologies, and other organizations should espouse to empower their users to be able to do to, to not have everything be online to the extent possible. Um, I don't know how realistic that is, but that's that's what I think about the matter at least. Yeah, and, and on that point, I just I want to credit you and, and thank you because you, just looking at your life, and I, I've learned a lot by looking at your life, and I remember one thing that you had told me is that you keep your phone on grayscale sometimes so that yeah. it's not so flashy you like you do a lot of like small things that that help you stay present i i would say that is mindfulness in a lot of ways where like you want to not be using your phone so much so that you can live in the moment 
Yeah, I, I think it enables the mindfulness. Like I use app timers. I don't have Slack or email notifications on my phone. Like when I look at them, I look at them and then they're there. And if I don't look at them, then they're not there. And I don't need to worry about them at that moment. Um, so, so it enables a sense of presence in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, I feel like the first time that we talked about that, I was like, this is like such a, in a way, like crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. Cause like you see the world and for me, it's like, I, I think I really appreciate technology and I'm like, you know, you have like the nicest iPhone with like, you know, 4k, like or however high res, you know, they got their promotion it looks nice. But then you turn it on to, to grayscale, and it's like, why? But then, like, when you think about the mental health effects it has, where, like, and, and it go, even going back to what you said about the eye tracking technology and how you don't necessarily need to have, like, a 4K, like, 160 degrees, like, field of vision, like, view, because your eyes can literally only see clearly. And, and, and actually, I, I want to talk a little bit about that because I think we talked about that in person. But your eyes can only focus clearly on such a small amount of content, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I don't remember what the percentage field of view plot looks like offhand, but the, the main idea is the thing that you're looking at right now is a very high acuity um, kind of perception. Um, the reason that is, is there's uh, specialized cells on the back of your eye that are more concentrated in one area, and it's the area that's like directly opposite your pupil, almost directly opposite your pupil. So the majority of the light that enters your eye um, is going to hit, well, not the majority of the light, but the portion of the light that enters your eye kind of dead on straight through your pupil is going to hit that area with tons and tons of sensory cells in it, and the rest of your, uh, the the light that enters your eye from these broader angles is going to hit areas that have less of those sensory receptors. So you're just not going to see as clearly in the periphery. That's so interesting to me because, you know, we see a lot of companies trying to innovate by making like 8K monitors that are like wall to wall coverage. But in reality, if you just, like you said, track the eyes, understand where they're going, you don't have to have 8K everywhere. You just need to have really good resolution where the person is looking at, right? right. So, and then to me, that principle kind of ties into, you know, these flashy phones. Like you can have a really cool phone with a lot of features, but they don't. you don't always need them to be the best, right? You can use your phone productively in grayscale mode. You can have an iPhone that's like the state of the art, you know, Beth, and I, I say iPhone a lot because I, I use iPhone, but you can have an Android for whatever phone you want. Um, but like, I like the idea to, to sum this whole train of thought of, uh, of being able to shut off when you have all the bells and whistles and also to, to, to be able to appreciate it at some times, but also realize that it's not important all the times. Definitely. And that's, that's like the dichotomy that I have to deal with, right? Because my company is firmly enabled by this rapid technological development of virtual reality technologies, right? That's, we, we wouldn't be here if that were not possible. Also, I don't like looking at my phone and I don't want to be bothered by technology, right? 
Um, so there's there's a little bit of a competing sense of purpose that goes on in my head, but to the extent possible, I've really tried to minimize um, these sort of small, meaningless demands on my attention throughout the day. I used to be really into like tech blogs, like, you know, The Verge and Gizmodo and trying to really keep up with what all the cool latest and greatest stuff is. And I think I fooled myself for a while into thinking that those were necessary and relevant to me keeping on top of what I need to know for my business, right? Like I need to know if there's a new VR headset, right? But really 99% of the time, The Verge is talking about phones and stuff, not VR. If I needed VR information, I would just go on a VR tech blog. But then also, 99% of that time, they're talking about a new game that came out, not about a new headset that came out. So there's just, there's so much unnecessary nonsense that I was looking at um, and pretending that it was relevant to my job. And it, it was not, and I got over it, um, but at the same time, somebody needs to pay attention to it and report on it because otherwise I wouldn't know when there's a new headset out. No, and it's important, but I think being able to turn it off, like when you, that, that I think is the most valuable thing, right? Like is being able to say, to not do things passively, right? Like I fell into the same yeah. trap as you, right? Like I would all, I'm always on the verge. I have the verge bookmarked. It's a great website too, for people that are tech enthusiasts. Um, but I, there, there's a hard, pa, doing something passively where you're like, you feel like you need to be doing this to stay up to date versus like when you need information looking, looking for it are two very different things. So if you're always like passively looking, it's going to be really frustrating because you're waiting for something cool to like, to come up. And then there's like a, you get irritated, you get irritated because things aren't moving fastly enough. You feel like innovation when in reality, innovation is moving really, really quickly. Like you can get 8K displays. I mean, my, the technology that we're using to record this podcast is like, it's relatively affordable. It's, you know, available to a lot of people. But we live in a society where I feel like we're in content overload always, right? Yeah, and I think companies like TikTok, companies like Netflix, Facebook, Twitter, they take advantage of that and they put you into a spiral where like you're doom scrolling through whatever site is is of your choice right and you feel like it's important when in reality it's not important and it's taking you out of the actual moment the actual reality like what's really around you um so on, on that note like what do you think about this is gonna be a broad question. What do you think about the 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 internet? Because it's I think it's a really good thing because we have so much access to information. Where if I wanted to learn something, I can learn it through YouTube. I can find an app that's an interactive way to learn how to do something. I could do all these things. But at the same time, the internet also has so much information that is kind of useless that gets us like trapped. Like. What do you think about the balance of like the internet? Like, do you find it, like how do you view the internet as a whole? Sure. Um, it's obviously a vital function of my job, right? Um, especially during the pandemic and working from home, being able to video chat with people and message with people is invaluable. But that's not really the information side of the internet, that's the connectivity side of the internet. So I'm. I really, really love the connectivity side of the internet in as much as 
uh, I only use parts of it, right? Like I said, I'm not really on Facebook or, or um, Twitter or whatever. And that's most people's use of the connectivity part of the internet. And, and I totally avoid it, quite frankly. Um, it's not something that I'm particularly interested in. Uh, people have, be there, there's benefit to it. I'm sure that there is. It's just not something that I've ever personally found much benefit to. Um, so I try to stay in my lane, I guess, as much as possible and just use it for information when I need it and use it for connectivity when I need it, um, but not really use it any other times. And also, to be fair, I'm a little bit full of crap, right? Um, I, I have a Reddit account and I've subscribed to three subreddits. One is the NJIT subreddit, so that doesn't even count because I'm providing good advice there to these poor little undergraduate students. The second is the skydiving subreddit because it's a hobby that I care about. And the third is Formula One because I freaking love Formula One, man. And I can't get enough information about Formula One, so I'm a total hypocrite and I love to just scroll through that content sometimes. But man to the extent possible i just i don't want to hear anything that anybody has to say about anything at any point in time ever unless i google like a specific thing that i want to know about um and that's kind of weird and kind of not in i guess but that's just how i am right and i i think me and you are similar in that so we essentially use the internet as a tool right like when we're interested in you know, our hobbies, we use it to scroll through things like the Reddit forum for, for Formula One, uh, things like that. When we are interested in learning about something new, we go to like the YouTube channels, the guys, the wikis, whatever it is. Do you fear though that other people with a little less self-control can end up disassociating from reality, especially when you have things like meta, right? Facebook, the metaverse, you know, where they're creating an environment virtually where you can have the experience of jumping out of an airplane, right? From the comfort of your couch, right? But what that does is it essentially disassociates that human from, from the actual world around them. Do you ever think about, you know, a fear of, you know, the internet or technology going too far in that way? I guess I wouldn't necessarily say it's an issue of self-control because to be fair, these technologies are designed to demand control to the extent possible. Like that's how they make money. Um, so construing it as like a, a an issue of personal choice or self-will is not something that I'm super comfortable with. But I guess the, the larger question that I grapple with a little bit is what is a metaverse and people are trying to answer this question all the time um, I remember when I first read Snow Crash the Neil Stevenson book that a lot of the terminology comes from it was wow that's the metaverse that makes sense but I'm not entirely sure that it requires that much I want to talk about Fortnite for a second because it's actually really 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 interesting this game comes out right it's a battle royale um, you just, there's a hundred people, you drop onto an island and um, the last one standing wins, right? But it's not just that. It's become so much more than that. It's a store. You buy clothing, you buy music, you listen to the radio, you drive a car around, you go to concerts. 
There's virtual hangout spaces. There's games within Fortnite that are like creator created, I guess. Um, Fortnite creator created content. Um, you can basically play Among Us in the Fortnite engine. It's it's ridiculous. It's like this whole little microcosm of the universe that is doing its best to replicate as much of the real life experience as physically possible. Oh, and by the way, it's it's a battle royale game, right? It's almost like an afterthought at this point. But at the end of the day, you know, you've got these kids who they come home and they open up Fortnite and they sit and they talk to their friends and they might play a game and they'll also talk to their friends. It's it's a social hangout area that exists totally virtually and replicates a bunch of real world functions. So I kind of think the metaverse is already here. Um, I think that there's little snippets of it in bits and pieces all over the place. I think Fortnite is a very good example. Uh, I think a lot of people will maybe eventually look back on that as like a prototypical metaverse. Maybe much the same way that people look back on the game Second Life as a prototypical metaverse. I really think it's going to be one of those big historical, like it'll be a paragraph in a social studies textbook at some point in the future, you know, bold, Fortnite, and then they'll talk about it for a paragraph and then move on to something totally unrelated. And you know what, though? There is a lot to appreciate there, too, because in a world, I feel like, especially during the pandemic, right, where people couldn't physically get together, you create community through a game like Fortnite where people are still staying in contact with each other. They're still communicating. You know, it might not be the most appropriate communication. You know, kids... There might be 13-year-olds that are cursing and saying, like, crazy things. But at least they're communicating and finding community within each other, which is a beautiful thing. My concern then becomes, how do you you help people self-regulate, right? Because Fortnite and playing video games and doing anything entertaining can be good if you if you regulate it, right? If you do it for a certain amount of time, but you still consider your physical health, you still consider, you know, the other elements that are important, and you still consider eating food, like taking care of your bare necessities. What I get worried about is some of these new environments that are being created are so engaging to the point where people neglect other important things. So they're doing well and that they're being able to communicate with other people, that's great, but they're not being physically active as much, which can lead to, you know, health issues and things like that. Sure. They're not so this is such a tough question. Yeah. Um, I, I feel to some extent this is such a common sentiment that must have been expressed all the time about all sorts of, you know, there were there were people who were once saying, Ah, oh, these kids sitting around reading their books, they're they're learning too much. And then there was the TV, right? Ah, these kids, they're watching too much TV and the media is telling them what to think, right? So is this just the next version of, ah, these kids sitting around playing their games in their metaverse? I don't know, because you're right, to an extent, these technologies have been designed in a different way. Like a book wasn't designed to take advantage of the way that your brain chemistry works to capture your attention for as long as possible. And maybe the Instagram feed is, right? Um, I Which is I, a remarkable I, innovation. You have to credit the fact that it is brilliant science behind it, but yes. how is it being used is the, the sketchy part, yeah. 
it's just like where do you draw the line because when you were saying for example you know people neglecting other activities in favor of doing this i've definitely sat around when i was a kid i i, I have distinct memories of being um you know when you're uh, in second or third grade and you still have those desks with like a little cubby in it just a little desk and i'd be sitting there you know, somebody in the class would be stumbling their way through reading a paragraph out loud, and I'm sitting with a book halfway poked out of the desk, and I'm just reading, not paying attention to what's going on, because I would read, like, I read the two pages that were open to in the social studies textbook ten minutes ago, and this kid's still reading through it, like, God, I'm just trying to get through a good book down here. Give me some peace and quiet, right? Um, so, so is that the line? Am I neglecting what I'm supposed to be doing in favor of uh, some attention-grabbing activity? I, that is what I'm doing, right? So, so what's the what's the definition that we use to decide what is too much, what is too attention-grabbing, when is it actually a problem, and who's responsible to control that impulse? I don't know. I think generationally, everyone is probably just going to learn their own ways to deal with it. Um, I think that if you look at um, people over the age of 40. I'm broadly speaking, you know, I'm not trying to target anybody, but, you know, try to think about the social media habits of, like, a 40-year-old suburban mom. Those aren't super healthy-looking habits, or at least the stereotype that we have of it, right? You know, we're, like, scrolling through mommy blog posts and, like, weird right-wing political nonsense and, like, talking about, ah, oh, the neighborhood's going, did you see who moved in down the street? Like, that's not a healthy environment, and maybe they need just as much help regulating this as the kids do, or maybe the kids are growing up with it, and they're going to learn how to do a better job of it than the 40-year-old white lady who's just never going to learn at this point. I don't know. Maybe they'll do a better job than we're giving them credit for. Well, so the, the problem that I end up seeing, right, is that, and this is coming now from, from the political perspective, right? Because, I mean, you know my background. Um, you know, I worked on the Bernie campaign, political activist. Exactly, exactly. And the reason why I get, and first of all, let me preface this by saying I love technology. I think it's innovational. I think it enables a lot of the cool things that I do. But... I get worried because technology can create comfort in a very uncomfortable situation, right? If you think about where we are as a country, where, I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? Where, where people can't even, you know, get within like 12 feet of each other without being like worried about like getting each other sick. You know, we're in a very uncomfortable reality right now but because of technology, we are able to feel comfortable. So what that does, what I worry is that, what that does is it shuts down the appetite to actually fix the broader problems because you've been enabled to feel comfort in the uncomfortable, right? You can go home and you can play Fortnite and not be as upset that the world is shut down, but that means no one is actually doing the work to get the world back up and running. And that's where I see the biggest problem with things like, you know, Facebook, TikTok, like video games, stuff like that is it's good because it gives you things to do when you need to be able to decompress, but it's bad because it can make you feel so comfortable that you don't want to make things better. 
Um, so what do you think about that, that whole thought? I think this technological age that we live in has definitely enabled, to some extent, being able to retreat and decompress with just a stream of endless information. But I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a happy retreat, and it's a retreat that people want um, to not do anything based on, because so much of the doom scrolling is negative information, right? Like, the same way that one person might go home and just look at pictures of cats to decompress, another person might go home and just, like, scroll through Breitbart for four hours and just, like, ah, the country! It's being destroyed from the inside out! I gotta do something, right? So... There's, there's definitely two sides to it, and, and I think it is just as powerful of a tool for um, enacting engagement as it is for enacting disengagement. Right. And that's and here's the thing, and, and I completely agree with what you're saying, and one thing that I get... You can disagree. No, 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 because I, no, I, I truly do agree, but here's the thing. I used to feel that just by posting an Instagram story, you know, talking shit about Joe Biden and talking shit about Donald Trump, I used to feel like that was contributing to making the world a better place. And I get worried because I think there are a lot of people that feel like by just publicly saying something, they feel like, oh, they've done their part and that's, that's it. They don't need to do anything more. And then eventually I realized, like, whatever I put out there, the same people that already agree with me are going to already agree to that you know, sentiment. The people that already disagree with me, they're not even going to look at that sentiment because they know that if they click on my story, if they, like, click on my name, whatever it is, they're going to find something that makes them a little uncomfortable, maybe an uncomfortable truth or something like that. So they're not even going to be engaged. So what you've created is an echo chamber where you feel like you're contributing but you're really not and it gives you a false sense of like hey i'm doing something bad i think what you're doing with your company like you are a person that's actually using your skills to make the world a better place in your way and that's what i wish more people would do is like use their skills i'm not saying go out and go door to door knock on every door tell people to vote for bernie like that was what was most useful for me at that time that i did that but my biggest thing has always been find what you're really good at and use those skills to contribute positively to the world and what i see is a lot of people that that either don't believe in themselves and their skills enough to, in a way, I feel like people are waiting for someone to say, you can use your skills, right? They have all this like wealth of knowledge that they've developed through college through, and, and some people didn't go through college, but you know, people develop a wealth of skills just by the interactions that they go through in their day-to-day -day life. And I feel like, people are waiting to be told that they can use it, right? That's why when you get a job and your boss tells you, you know, to do what you're good at, then you'll do it. But if nobody tells you to do something, then people don't do it. And then you add in technology, then you add in Netflix, then you add in Fortnite, where now it's so much easier to not do something that uses your skills and be, be entertained and like enjoy your life so that you never end up actually using your skills to do something positive and make an, an impact.
Does that logic, what do you think about that logic? I think that my being able to use my skills is to an extent a function of um, my financial privilege, for lack of a better word. Um, right? to, to tie it back to like the general concept of entrepreneurship that we were talking about before, the reason that I had the freedom to explore um, what I wanted to do in college was because I was covered by a very generous financial aid package. I did not have to worry about tuition, room and board fees, anything when I was in school. So I was really able to just do what I wanted on campus, you know, maintain a certain grade point average and whatnot, but it gave me the freedom to do what I wanted creatively in academia as well as extracurricularly. And then moving past that, after I graduated, um, I had a job in a research lab and that enabled me to continue to do my research as I was developing my skills. And when I wanted to start this company, um, I had a job that I was able to do on the side still. And also to keep in mind, I had a golden parachute of my parents are both physicians and if everything really crapped out, I would be okay, right? There was an element of financial security that certainly aided me being able to do what I am today, being able to use my skills. So so maybe it's not entirely the, the, the burden of responsibility isn't entirely on people to just, well, just use your skills. Stop looking at the internet and just use your skills. Maybe some people really need more than just somebody telling them that. Maybe they need more money. Maybe they need more time. And I know your argument is, well, if you spent less time doom scrolling through Instagram, then you'd have more time to use your skills. And there's there's definitely something to that argument. I don't disagree with you. Um, but I think it's just, it's a little bit more nuanced of a conversation than just get you know get good kid try harder <laughs> so does that kind of that whole philosophy i guess i guess that kind of goes back to your idea of building that perfect culture right in the workplace right because you're trying to satisfy your workers core needs so that they can maximize their creativity right right, right. So this, this is going to sound, I don't mean this as a humble brag or anything, right? But this is a very legitimate thing that I just did yesterday at my job, right? So we're at the stage now where we're trying to first sell our product. Um, we're a pre-market company, but we're rolling toward um, a, let's call it, uh, for lack of a better word, a meeting with the FDA to make sure that we're good to sell something and then we'll start selling it in around June or July of this year. For that to happen, we're gonna need a lot of money and we're gonna need some new people. We're gonna need like salespeople and more developers and all that kind of stuff. We're gonna need to buy inventory. We need more money. So we're gonna be doing a fundraising round. We're gonna raise, I'm not gonna tell you how much, um, but we're gonna be raising some money. And what we do with that money is something that I'm trying to derive right now. Who do we spend money on? What do we need to pay for? So yesterday, I asked each of our employees in a one-on-one -on -one meeting, what benefit do you need the most right now. Do you need health insurance? Do you need a 401k? Do you need stock options? Do you need more time off? Do you need more flexible workout? Our work hours are pretty flexible. It's not that one, but right. Um, what can we give you that gives you a sense of financial security or healthcare security or housing security? Like what can we do to take something off of your plate? Because up until now, I gotta be honest, we're a tiny cash strap startup company. I just give them money for goods and services. There's really no benefits that we have other than like working from home and 
whatever your hours are or what you want them to be. Um, that's important. And nobody really does that. Right? You have to find that. You have to go out to a job and be like, well, what is your benefits package? You don't have a say in that, right? That's not a th You can't just go to your boss at Panasonic and say, hey, I think that we need to get a better health insurance plan for all our employees. What's he going to do about that? Go talk to the 18th level of boss hell that he has to get through in order to do that? No, nobody cares, right? So I'm trying to give that security, man. Yeah. And it's so funny that you mentioned Panasonic specifically because I don't know if you remember, but I worked at Panasonic and that is why it came to mind. Oh, okay. Oh, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And I will tell you that I remember I, Panasonic was, I believe, my first corporate experience in, in the workforce. And I was straight out of college. I started as a co-op and I was super excited and... I remember one thing specifically where I, I mean, you know me, every environment that I get into, I want to like change things. I want to do something yeah, that's, that, I, that's, that's very much you. Yeah. So I get there and I'm, for so, I just have, I don't know if it's an ego or whatever. I set up a meeting with the CEO <laughs> of the company through, yeah, probably ego. And I'm, I literally go and, and, I wanted to ask him, like, hey, we need to be treating our workers better. And I wanted to put together a young employee network. And, you know, I that, yeah. yeah. And then I get back to my desk and I got so much flack because I skipped so many rungs. I went not to my boss, but not to the boss's boss. Not even to the president of the company. I went to the CEO of the entire company. But to me, it was like, I'm just doing my best to advocate for my colleagues. But to my colleagues, I think they either saw it as, I don't know, me trying to like leapfrog and like get ahead or something. And I'm like, no, I'm just trying to make the environment a better place. I'm trying to advocate for you. I want you to have better things. Um, and it's so funny that, and, and that's one of the reasons why I left corporate America is because that structure and that like that sense of like you can't even talk to me because you're not you don't have a level of experience to talk to me okay. and that's why when you were talking about what you just said and when you're asking your your employees like oh what do you want i think that's a level of humility that we need to bring back right to be able to say like you are my workers like you you're the ones that are doing the really good work here that that enable the success of the company how can I help you? And it's it's scary to me that that in big corporations that that doesn't exist. Right, because they're a commodity, right? There's another and, and like at a at that kind of scale, I don't know what the right way to do it is. I, I don't know if I would be able to. I'd hope that I'd be able to do something different, but at least at the scale that I'm at right now, and the scale that I think our company would ever realistically be able to go to. Um, I, I think that's something that I'd like to maintain as much as possible. It's you're, you're not a commodity. Like if you leave, just very realistically speaking, if one of my employees leaves right now, oh my God, that's such a headache. Like I have to find someone else. I have to bring them up to speed. I have to figure out if they're any good at their job. 
and then also make sure that they're a good personality fit with the rest of the team. That's so much work. Why would I want to do that? Why wouldn't I rather just like make a good welcoming environment that everyone enjoys or at least enjoys to the extent possible for work and then not ever have to deal with that problem? It just doesn't make any sense. It's curious to me about like where that dynamic changes because I'm sure any company to get to the, that scale, like the scale that Panasonic is at, they probably had a good environment for a long time and then at some point they were making so much money and then they flipped it where the, the workers ended up just being a line on a balance sheet and then you know the money was everything. Whereas I feel like you're in the perspective where the workers are everything. We don't have any lines on the balance sheet right now. Like we need to build lines on the balance sheet. And I wonder, and I get curious about like, where, where is that, that point where it shifts, you know? Like how big do you have to get? That's such a good question. Yeah. And, and, I don't know if anybody knows. I don't think anyone does. And that's definitely a rhetorical question, but it gets me to what I think both of us really appreciated about NJIT. Right, because NJIT was a college where I literally set up meetings with Dr. Bloom and I would like walk in the room completely unprepared and he would call me out. But the thing is, he had the conversation in the first place. Other schools, if you tried to talk to the president of the university about anything, they would be like, talk to eight other people first, like blah, 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 like go through all this red tape. At NJIT, the first event that I remember, you know, when I was a freshman was Pancakes with the President. Dr. Bloom was just, like, going around talking to people. And I think a lot of people, a lot of my, my you know, colleagues at school, they they didn't think much of it. They were just like, who wants to talk to Dr. Bloom? I'm going to go do something more fun. And I was just like, wait, he's actually going to, like, listen to what we have to say? Like, that's really, really cool to me. And I thought that was unique. Um, yeah, talk to me about your experience at NJT and how that kind of helped your, you, yeah. you get to where you're I think you and I, you and I were both very privileged in that we, we have uh, ongoing, or at least I, I still do. I know you're not there anymore, but I, I have an ongoing, I think, nice conversational relationship with the president of the school. And that's not something that a lot of people have. Um, but I don't think that it's something that people don't have because it's hard to get. I just don't think that a lot of people try for it. Um, I remember, so Pancakes with the President is a great event, right? But you're right that not enough people realize how great it is and how important it is to have that opportunity for FaceTime and for conversation. When I was a freshman, there's a class in the, in the BME department that I majored in uh, called BME 101. And it was a lecture series by all the department professors. Um, it was a non-credit class. You just sat there for an hour every Thursday or something. And one faculty member from the department will come in, say, hi, this is me, this is my research, give a little PowerPoint presentation, and that was it. It was just a way for you to get familiar with who's who in the department. One of the earlier presentations was from this guy uh, retired from NJIT a while ago, uh, Dr. Rick Folds. He did um, like exoskeleton motion capture research kind of stuff. And he came in, he gave his presentation. Uh, at the end of the hour, he wrapped it up. He said, yeah, we're setting up this new motion capture system in the lab. It's really cool. There's like a bunch of boxes, bunch of cameras, whole rigging system, whatever. Um, tomorrow, we're gonna be setting it up. We could use some extra help. So if anybody wants to show up and help us, you know, just feel free to stop by. It's on the sixth floor, like the home of the BME department. And there were roughly a hundred people in that class. 
So 10 of them showed up. I was one of them, right? And then he said, ah, oh, no, I'm sorry. We're busy right now and we didn't get one of the boxes. I'm going to have to ask you to come back same time next week. And of those 10, three people showed up. And I was one of those three. And actually, Jake Campbell was another one of the three. Um, so it's it's not for lack of opportunity a lot of the time. It's for lack of effort. Like, Jesus, the guy, you're, you're complaining two years on about, oh, man, how did you get a research position? It's so hard to connect with the professor. This guy said, come help me. Did you not come help him? Dr. Bloom's handing out pancakes outside saying, come talk to me. Did you not go talk to him? Like, what more do you need by way of opportunity than people giving you the opportunity and saying, here, here's the, take the opportunity. What else is there? So that was always my experience at NJIT is there's opportunities everywhere. It's a small school. It's not Harvard. It's not MIT. It's just, everything is at your disposal. Everything is a fingertip away. One email and you're good. And it, it's, it's so funny because now you're the CEO of your company, right? And I'm sure countless people ask you, like, how did you get to where you are? And I bet for you, it feels obvious. You just took advantage of the things that were presented to you when they came up. But for other people, like, they don't realize, like, there are opportunities around you everywhere that you can choose to either take advantage of them or not take advantage of them. And if you do, and this is why I'm a yes man, right? This is why I say yes to everything, because I feel like even if there's nothing I don't ever think that there's nothing to gain, right? Like jumping out of an airplane, I know there's something to gain. So you learn, yeah. yeah, you learn about dealing with fear. You're learning about like, and that's the thing, like I, you have to take every opportunity and be reflective and, you know, make the most of it. And once you do that, things end up working and get, like getting you to where you are, right? This is why I've been able to like switch from corporate America to politics, to teaching, like, and to me, it feels effortless. People on the outside looking in, they're like, how, first of all, they're like, what are you doing? Like, are you lost? Are you confused? I'm like, no, like this is, I'm just doing what feels good to me. The other thing is people are like, how are you doing it? I'm like, I just take the opportunities as they come. Right. And it doesn't right. feel like I'm anyone unique. It doesn't feel like I'm someone special. It doesn't feel like I'm like above everyone else or, you know, in a different scale. It's just, you know, as opportunities come, if you choose to take advantage of them, then you're going to get ahead. Right. I do get that question a lot that you just said, like, how did you get here? How did you do this? And it, it kind of annoys me sometimes when I get it from specifically from some NJIT students. You know, at any university, there's always going to be a cohort of students who are just kind of complacent and kind of don't really seem to be that interested. That's fine. I'm not trying to make a critique on the NJIT student experience right now. But if I really critically look back on what I and my co-founders had to do to get this company started at NJIT, it was actually insanely difficult. Every step of the way, we were the first one to do it. There wasn't another NJIT student and faculty started company before. There were all sorts of ethical things that had never been considered. There was no process for. There were IP things that there was no process for. There were licensing things that there was no process for. So every step of the way, we were literally the first people to ever do something. It took so much extra time and effort and paperwork and emails and meetings. And now there's a process for everything 
at this school. You can roll into the entrepreneurship center on campus and say, hi, I want to start a company. And they'll basically hand you a paper full of all of the crap that we had to figure out how to do on our own for the first time. It's so mind-bogglingly easy to have an idea on NJIT campus and get support for it. People are screaming at you from all angles. Do you have any good ideas? Come talk to us about them. And I still get asked this question, like, how did you start this company? Like, do you not hear what is going? There are so many talented students on campus who are taking advantage of this opportunity right now, and you don't know anything about them. Why aren't you paying attention to this? And isn't that infuriating? It, it's infuriating, and it's most infuriating to me when it comes to the people that were there that saw you navigating through the world and saw you going through the difficult parts, and then they're the ones that are asking you, like, how did you do this? Like, you were there. Like, you saw the decisions that I made. You saw the sacrifice. Like, yeah, I didn't hang out with people one day because I was working on this project. But, like, but you saw that. So how can you pretend you don't know what I went through is something that, that bothers me sometimes. But then, to me, again, I don't think there's any fault on, on individuals. I think there's a fault on how easy it is to not do anything and feel fine, right? And this is why, again, I go back to like how technology can be a problem because like if you have Netflix, if you have Hulu, if you have TikTok, it's so easy for you to wake up in the morning and just scroll through and only do the basic things, only get like a shitty like, you know, bag of chips to eat, only get like, you know, just barely meet your survival needs and get lost in like all these distractions when there are so many opportunities like if you just instead of you know sitting there all day and scrolling through twitter if you just walked out your door especially when you're in college like there's no better time than when you're in college because Absolutely. there's so, anytime you walk out your door there's like you could probably go to a club that has something interesting where you can learn a lot you could probably like talk to a teacher that can teach you a lot there's so much stuff but it's become so easy to be happy yeah that it becomes detrimental to people and then they become so shocked when when other people are doing things that end up being successful and they know there's people they saw them doing it and and then they're like whoa like how did you do that and i'm like you were there like you were there the whole time i just don't know whose fault it is like i'm i'm so proud of all the steps that NJIT has taken to make entrepreneurship a viable pathway regardless of a student's like financial capability. They have done so much to put in place systems that really enable people or students uh, to have ideas and to receive support, technical support, commercialization support, heck, mental health support on campus, right? All of these things are there and they feel so well advertised and, you know, part of my job as, as an instructor is I'm writing letters of recommendation for people, right? And I'll sit with them and I'll go through their resume and we'll talk through their experiences and I'll ask them questions about things. And it's just so clear that they don't even know what they could have done to make this a better, like, application or resume. They just, they don't know. And I don't know whose fault that is because maybe I'm just, like, in a fun little echo chamber of entrepreneurship at NJIT where I hear about it all the time and I think it's good because it's the building that I work in, but... 
man, there's just, there's so many resources. Do you remember a couple years ago, there was an article that had come out where it ranked like NJT as like one of the most depressing campuses in the country, which was ridiculous. And it was crazy to me because I think when I read it at that time, like I was involved in so many things and I was like, this place is like the most exciting place in the world, especially because, you know, people, something that I've known well for within the college community, within the NJIT community is like, I was a big part of the Student Activities Council back when I, when I started in college. And I don't think people understood my obsession with the Student Activities Council, but my obsession was because... First of all, my family wasn't the richest growing up. I walked into NJIT and they essentially said, whatever you want to do, dream to your heart's desire. Here's an infinite budget. Create whatever you want. And I was just like, wait, what? Like, I can, I can spend your money to do the things that I want to do? Like, what? And that's the same campus that was called the most depressing campus in the world. That, to me, it's like, what do you mean this is depressing? But then, yeah. No, but then you, but then you can also empathize with people that felt, I, I don't know whether it was like alienated or like there are a lot of people, you know, that just, they don't, they don't engage with the campus. And that's why, like, if you, if your experience is I'm going to go to school I'm going to do my classes and then I'm going to go straight home, then yes, you will be, be depressed because your life should not be just, oh, I just need to learn and then get home. I just need to learn. That's depressing. But if your experience is, I want to go there, I want to learn, but then I also want to do something cool, I want to have fun on campus, then it's like an amusement park. And that's, that was my whole philosophy out there. I remember when I first toured NJIT's campus as like a high school student on an open house day. I'm from suburban South Jersey. So we had to drive up the turnpike into Newark, which to be fair, in 2012 was a very, very different place than it was today. Um, And it was raining and very urban and campus was a little bit more closed back then. It wasn't quite as open spacey as it has become now. Um, and it was right around the time of year where the architecture students were about to do their brick builds, which is like a, a second year program that they do where they learn about masonry. But what that means is last year's brick builds were out. So it basically just looked like piles of bricks barely held together, really poorly constructed on campus, raining, urban, not my environment, right? I hated it. I thought that was a really depressing campus at the time. And then they offered me a generous financial aid package and I would have been an idiot not to accept it. So I accepted it and I went there. And then so many good things came out of that. You know, I was watching, um, there's a show on Netflix, Baking Impossible. It's like they pair up an engineer, air quotes on engineer. I don't know what these people's credentials are, um, with a baker. And they're supposed to bake these ridiculous structures and robots and skyscrapers with like food material instead of normal material. And uh, my, my girlfriend pointed this out to me. When they were introducing the contestants, it'd be like, this is Christy, and she got her degree in mechanical engineering from Harvard. And then it'd be, this is Dale, and he got his degree in electrical engineering. Moved on, right? It's like if you didn't go to your Harvard, your MIT, your Yale, if you didn't go to a name school, it's like it didn't matter. 
right? It wasn't worth mentioning, which is ridiculous because if I were to have ended up at one of those schools, I would have been the tiniest little fish in the most enormous ocean possible. And instead, I ended up at NJIT and you ended up at NJIT and we were both able to take so or take advantage effectively of so much power that was given to students on this campus. And had we gone to a bigger school, it would have been significantly harder to do that. You're right. You rolled on campus and they were like, here's some money, plan some events for us, do whatever you want. I don't care. You're the students. It's the student activity. Yeah. That's, that's so cool. Yeah. And I, I think about that a lot. Because when when I was applying for colleges, um, a lot of people don't know about th- this about me. I'm not a smart person. I applied to two colleges. I applied. Smart person. Yeah, thank you, thank you. But I, I only applied to two colleges. I applied to Rutgers and I applied to NJIT. I got rejected from Rutgers, and I was so sad going into college, right? Because I was like, all my friends are going to Rutgers. Rutgers is like this, it's not even a school, it's a city, right? Like, it's a city, and it's like, it felt like it was dominated by students. I was like, that seems like the most exciting place in the world. I, if I went to Rutgers, though, my life right now would be nothing like this. Yeah, because the small campus vibe, the connections that we were able to have with our teachers with our professors like the little things the the student activities council where they enabled us to do such cool things it it was empowering right where some guy who was average right who didn't even get to a a pretty easy to some standards a pretty easy school to get into where i could end up you know i was you know one of the godfallen years i know you were you when you left njic you got that 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 prestigious award what was that the presidential leadership award the highest award a university can bestow upon a student once Which a is- year but I didn't carry a gonfalon though you got that on it, okay i will say that i was campaigning hard for the presidential leadership award and i didn't get it and i was disappointed but we won't even mention that although we just mentioned it but yeah no and it's like but if i went to Rutgers, i would have never seen how capable i was and that was the big thing right to even have had the honor of carrying the gonfalon after barely getting admitted into the school like being like an average student like it it doesn't make sense but at the same time it makes so much sense you know like it's just like because the campus is what inspired me to work harder the campus like the their faith in me helped me have faith in myself to the point where i could do really really cool things and i i think people people lose sight of that and i i think it's it's not and it in some ways it goes back to like mindfulness too because it's like whatever situation that you're in if you make the most of it you're going to get a lot out of it if you go into it feeling depressed you're going to end up leaving depressed as well and it's like you have the choice of how to experience any moment that you have and and i think that's that i would not have learned that without njit you absolutely do your perception alters reality 100 percent and even just going back to that metaphor about the skydiving right like when you're on the plane your whole world is in the plane and the second that you jump out 
your whole world is literally the world and that perception shift destroys the fear of being 13,000 feet above the ground because it's like also to be fair I'm slightly happy to be out of that plane. I don't trust it. It's a little old. It's kind of an aluminum can <laughs> the, the plane is probably more dangerous than the free fall honestly in, in a lot of ways so so it really and, and it's a testament to how powerful our brains are right because everything the way we experience the world is happening in here and it's it's crazy it's it's honestly you know remarkable to think about you know and you probably see it more like you know because you work directly with the eyes and you see how that connects to your brain and and you probably know you know but i i just don't think people really appreciate how much that they have within themselves and they're looking for external pleasure but like in reality everything is about your own perception we're just we're like we're lizards we just we're just a bunch of chemicals doing some stuff but you have control over your chemicals that's that's really all that we're talking about with mindfulness here like the the way that i've always thought about it is or at least the way it was explained to me your brain gets stuck in patterns of you know neurochemical reactions and like depression for example um it's you're not getting enough of the stuff that you need right you'll look the the thing that was so terrifying about depression is it's not that you're not wanting to do things that you don't want to do it's that you don't want to do things that you used to want to do you're losing a passion for things that you actually enjoy because your brain is just so used to this negative chemical reaction that's going on right now and it's so interesting the way that like um mindfulness and um cognitive behavioral therapy is supposed to help with depression is to just ignore the fact that you're feeling negatively for a minute do the activity and then like objectively think about it for a sec and the more and more often you do that the more and more often you just do the thing that you don't want to do and you realize that more often than not you're having a better time than you thought or at least not as bad of a time as you thought the more and more your brain will be ready to associate those good chemicals with an activity before it started rather than having to wait to do the activity before it gets its response it's it's so powerful this mindfulness stuff it really really is it, it can change change people's world um we're pushing i don't know if you'll believe it but we're pushing almost two hours here we are yeah i do have a boy scout meeting in 15 minutes that i have to get to of your time there but i just want to make one disclaimer we are not sponsored by njit um although we would welcome your sponsorship <laughs> given how much we talked about how great it is there um but yeah john i want to say thank you so much um for for being the first guest on the podcast i think it was a in a way a risk you know for you i mean to spend some of your time i mean I, I think about opportunity cost a lot and you know you could be doing a lot with your time so I'm really grateful that you decided to spend it um, with me and helping me launch this this initiative here um, is there anything that you want to shout out you know pages where you can learn more about your company like anything that I mean, sure. yeah yeah first I mean thank you for having me I do really appreciate it no time cost whatever it's just, it's just fun to hang out and talk to a friend 
Um, I'm hoping that much the same way as when I first went back and watched the first season of Hot Ones and I was like, wait, who are these people? I've never heard of these rappers. And now it's like they're just interviewing the most popular, most recognizable people in the world. I'm hopeful that I will eventually be, wait, who is this guy that Avez is talking to? Doesn't he normally talk to like known people? Um, so, so I wish you all the best with this. As far as my shout outs, Again, I'm the CEO of a company called Ocula Motor Technologies that doesn't sell anything because we're pre-market right now. But um, this year, there's some really, really exciting stuff going on for us. If you want to learn more, you can check out our website, omtvr.com, or just Google us, Ocula Motor Technologies. Um, I thank you for your time, Avez. Thanks to my employees for getting me to the point that we're at right now and hopefully we can chat again in the future about some exciting stuff that we have coming out this year yeah yeah i would love to have you back especially if you end up starting to do more consumer stuff that would be really really cool to talk about and i'll put links to everything that you just said in the description and i'll probably put them somewhere up here um we'll figure that out but yeah, thanks again, John. I hope you have fun at the, the Boy Scouts thing that you have going on. And um, thanks again for taking the time to speak with me.